everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Separation is in the Preparation podcast. My guest today is Derek Failer. Derek, thanks so much for joining me. How are you? Oh, it's my pleasure, Wallace. Thank you. Excellent. A little, a little tired from the weekend, but in a really good spot. Okay, great. Well, I guess before, as we dive into things, if you could just sort of further introduce yourself a little bit to the listener and then talk a little bit about what you do. Yeah, so um, I have a private practice uh, in performance enhancement and mental performance strategies. Uh, it's called Thrive Excellence in Sports Performance. And this is like basically year eight and a half for me having a private practice in performance enhancement. Um, work with a variety of teams and athletes from teens to on up to adults, pro players, adult competitors, some non-sport participants as well. Um, I still dabble a little bit in coaching soccer. I had a, a, at the high school season or high school year, had a 20 year collegiate coaching career that needed to come to a rest. And so that I could start this line of work and a uh, family guy and got a couple of kids and ensconced in Seattle and lots to do and really love what I do. Awesome. Well, yeah, no, I mean, really, really excited from, from my vantage point to have you on, I guess, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of what you do, I'm always curious and kind of how people got sort of started on the path that they're on. So for you, what was kind of your first introduction um, to, I guess, sort of sport performance psychology and kind of thinking about things from that perspective? So I think there's probably a pretty big cliche out there about psychology students. And, and that sort of goes as follows that usually you recognize some sort of not ideal part in yourself and mm. are to kind of work on self-care although we wouldn't know to call it that in undergrad but um, that's that fits where I was so as an undergrad uh, collegiate soccer player I just had a heck of a time staying healthy and spent a lot of time in the trainer's room and a lot of time on the end of the bench trying to recover from you know hamstring injuries and low back problems and ultimately just couldn't get on the field consistently enough to feel like all of that endeavor was worth it and uh, pretty frustrated as a, as a student athlete and ended up stopping my career due to injuries and just not being able to overcome the challenge of, you know, like overcoming the, that particular injury and then maybe getting re-injured and having to go through that process again. And so um, started kind of seeking out some options for myself and in that way stumbled upon um, sort of the major of sports psychology at the university where I was and just fell in love with it, right? Really decided that this is a path that I believe in. It's a, it's a path that I see lots of athletes needing some help with and clearly wasn't gonna go pro. It wasn't good enough to do that. And so felt like a really viable way to engage with athletes going forward so that maybe they didn't need to go through the same heartache and travails that I was struggling with. Um, of course, nowadays, I know that I had athletic trainers and PTs that are as good as they are now. I wouldn't have that issue, but... Um, in, in that timing, really happy to have discovered a, a sports psych path. Um, that led into graduate school and a master's in sports psychology, which uh, literally two months after completing my thesis, got offered the head women's soccer coaching job at Western Washington University. So I was, whatever I was, 25 or 26 years old and used most of my sports psych training at that point to better myself as a coach and hopefully create a good environment for the players that I was coaching parlayed six years of work at Western with the women's team into a two-year stint at DePaul, where I was both the women's and men's assistant coach, uh, and then was fortunate enough to be offered the job to start the women's soccer program at Cleveland State. So we were a D1 program in the Horizon League, and I was at Cleveland State for 11 seasons, and just sort of reached a point of 
to be fair, a little bit of burnout with recruiting, a little bit of burnout with just the treadmill feeling of collegiate sports and kind of fell back in love with sports psychology and performance enhancement and decided that that was the right time to put one side down and fully invest in the, the mental training aspect of sport. And what I realized at that stage was short of a terminal degree with a PhD or a PsyD or something like that, I needed something that was uh, recognizable and stood you know, behind me. And so went on a two-year process with the Association for Applied Sports Psychology to become a certified mental performance consultant. And through lots of mentored hours and some additional classwork and a whole bunch of other little details that nobody needs to know about, um, achieved that CMPC uh, status. And that allowed me to open private practice and do what I do. And so um, kind of an indirect path to where I am now. But I think as I look back at it, I really started with wanting to help myself became how can I coach and be effective in a coaching role. And it's kind of back to full circle, not with self, but back to helping athletes in a more mm -hmm. focused setting. And um, so work with collegiate athletes that see that stuff, youth athletes that, you know, are going through different challenges and um, really happy to hopefully offer some wisdom and insight and some skills for people to hopefully become their effective, consistent best. Yeah, absolutely. No, wow. Lots there to unpack, but I guess just cause you mentioned it when, when you're starting a new program, like you were at Cleveland state, I mean, obviously there's challenges taking over as the head coach anywhere, but when you're taking over literally from scratch, like what were, what were some really great things about that? And then what were some things that were extra difficult or, or that, or that, or that you wouldn't have faced had you just taken over a pre-existing program? We had zero Cleveland state at the time had no, uh, even club program. It, it's mostly a commuter campus, although that's changed a little bit since uh, 2003, but it was mostly a commuter campus. So there wasn't even intramurals really to speak of. There weren't club sports. So, um, and we came out of the gate with seven scholarships in a division one league that, you know, 14 was the maximum, right? So it was a whole lot of spending a year trying to find almost literally anybody that was willing to take a chance on a new school. I, I, I want to say now that we looked at character and, and all of those really cool traits that I suppose we could talk about later, but the reality was there were 13 division one schools that played women's soccer in Ohio and we were the 13th and like 317th D one women's soccer program to come online and really behind the gate. So we literally, we did the best that we could with recruiting, but I think we ended up taking some, some chances on almost anybody that was interested. And um, so the first two years were, I think the hardest coaching that I've ever experienced because uh, we, in those two seasons, we didn't win a single game. We tied our very last game of our second year. And so we had to look for lots of different kind of things to measure success and measure progress other than outcomes and results. And I mean, that day that we ended up tying Youngstown in the very final game, it literally felt like we'd won the World Cup. Uh, literally, the bench erupts, comes onto the field. It was an away game and there's tears and people are hugging. And, and, and so while that in the moment was immeasurable, um, I think just the trials of finding ways to, to measure success was really, really challenging. Um, and, and then things got rolling a little bit, but it, it was a rough start, to be fair. Um, I think I learned a lot about myself. And, and not getting distracted by wins and losses, but rather looking at player development and mm. other things I could do differently or better or more effectively for each individual. Um, so I think there were some struggles there. Um, at the same time, because it was a new program, there wasn't a ton of pressure to win games. And so we were free to, 
to explore and, and try a few things. And, you know, we went through a few different ways of player development, some exercise science options and off-season training programs to kind of see what fit, um, looked at different types of recruiting and who, who was a good fit in the, at the time in, the, in that mid-major conference. And so I think there were some experimental opportunities that maybe you wouldn't get if you came into a program that was pretty well established. Um, it was, it was very hard. It was really, really hard. And yeah. I'm, I'm really grateful for the experience because it felt a little bit like trial by fire, but in the end, um, I'm a better coach for having gone through that for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I just wonder from like a, a culture installation standpoint, right. Where you're trying to develop what might be the core tenets of, of your program moving forward. And you don't have the sort of carrot of success in terms of wins and and advancing throughout the conference tournament and then to the NCAA to kind of dangle in front of carrots. What were the kind of ways, I mean, you mentioned sort of adopting different measuring sticks. What were kind of some of the ways that you did that in terms of to try to install the way that you wanted things to be moving forward? So early on, it was really about individual student athlete accountability, and it had nothing to do with on-field performance. It was do you have your time management skills down pat? Are you, are you sorted out in such a way that you're keeping on top of your academics? I mean, no joke. We, we had to check in with our academic advisors every single day to see if some kids were going to class, right? And so really helping establish some healthy behavior patterns of how we manage ourselves as a student athlete. Um, Cleveland is in the heart of the Rust Belt and many of our of our freshman and sophomore athletes were first generation in college. And so helping them understand how to navigate going to class and doing for themselves and you know, eating correctly and resting right way. And like all of those life skills were a lot of where we put our attention in the first two or three years actually. And hoping to try to create well-rounded humans that would eventually become effective soccer players. So those were really most of our core tenants early. And then as we became better on the field and we took care of our off the field business, it was a little bit easier then to start measuring, you know, soccer statistic-y kind of things, right? And um, my assistant coach, Dallas Boyer, uh, and I created, which now feels a lot like Instat, but lots of ways of measuring um, possession and possession success and and places in thirds of the field that was more beneficial to complete passes. And um, we now call them at sometimes packing and impacting balls and things like that. And so we created a system there to kind of measure things other than wins and losses. Um, early on, we used a lot of fitness markers and, and set a lot of fitness goals and things for players too, because those were tangible, right? You know, mm-hmm. can you run the T test in X amount of time or, yeah. you know, can you do a, a 25 yard shuttle in X amount of time? So we, we tried to look at all of those different kind of things, but we definitely started with let's be good student athletes and, and look at, you know, sleep, hydration, nutrition, class management, how we treat others around us, you know, details matter, all of that. Yeah. And with kind of that sort of life skill foundation that you established earlier in your, your time there, did you find that kind of later on in your tenure, those things were so ingrained into the program that new student athletes could kind of learn from the student athletes who'd been there a while, or was it still kind of a tangible intentional choice on your part to emphasize these things, especially for the girls who were first entering the program? You know, I'd like to say that that story ends in the logical progression, but no, we didn't really get any better at that. And I think Mm. some of that was, some of it was the university itself. I mean, again, as a commuter campus, there just wasn't a ton of energy around you as a student athlete to to say, okay, this is just how we do our thing, right? It was very isolating in that way. I mean, I want to say less than a thousand people lived on campus 
the first six years of, of me being there. So it, it really just, there wasn't a lot going on to, to suggest that mentoring or being a mentee was effective. So no, we had to stay pretty dialed into those. Um, for me now, where I'm coaching now, those skills roll forward. Um, and they're a heck of a lot easier to teach now. But I think then we could never, never let up. You know, we just couldn't. We had to make sure that people were eligible. And, and that was a real challenge. Um, and again, I think because of the level of school we're at, we had lots of people that wanted to transfer in. You know, maybe they would have taken a flyer on a bigger school away from Cleveland and it didn't work out for whatever reason. And they would come back to Cleveland to, to be at home and finish a career. And in my experience, people that are transferring schools, at least then before the transfer portal, there was usually not a positive reason for transferring. And so we still had to kind of go back and reteach those skills too, if we were going to accept transfers, which we did. So yeah, I think that wasn't something we ever dropped. It was just constantly in the forefront of how do we be a good student athlete on and off the field? Wow. Yeah, no, I mean, so you've got the student athlete life skills that you're constantly teaching. You're trying to build a program from one that didn't win any games to one that hopefully is successful and that is competitive and things like that. And then of course you have this sort of sports psychology performance training. How, how, and when did you sort of start to integrate that in to the teaching that you were doing for your players? Or was it something that you just trying to, you believe so much in that it was like right from the start, it was a part, it was kind of part of that foundation. So as a current performance consultant and coach, yeah. What's become really clear to me is there are certain mental skills that I can teach and incorporate as a consultant that I really can't use or port into training as a coach. So when you think about a team and the dynamics of a roster, the relationships, and I guess I should say the on-field relationship that I have with an athlete that's, in, at least in soccer, in the top you know, 11, 12, 13, 14 of the roster is very different than the relationship from coach to player that I have with somebody that's maybe player 15 through the end of the roster, whatever that is. And so, you know, if I'm asking the top end to reflect on their performance and think about nuances that they could tweak or ways to, you know, do a little bit different pre-game or pre-practice routine because it will enhance their, you know, final third ability, there's, a, there's an audience there. If I'm talking to player 22 who hasn't seen the field all season about how they're going to enhance their pre-practice routine, he or she kind of looks at me like, hmm, you know, do I really want to go down this road? Because I'm not sure I'm going to play, right? And so, so I would say that as a coach, we spend a lot of time on, you know, what are the controllables that, that we've got management over? How do we shift our attention back to those things? What are the distractions that come up with a, with a soccer team or gymnastics team or whatever I'm working with? You know, and how do we pre-plan responses to those distractions as an athlete? Um, and then I think a little bit of, you know, let's, let's manage our emotions, right? It, you give up a goal, you score a goal. We don't wanna to be too high, we don't wanna to be too low because there's another play, right? And so I think those became a lot of the foundational mental training that we did as a coach. I have many more tools in my toolbox as a performance enhancement consultant because I have a much different role with athletes. And so I, I had a professor way back when in grad school, Dr. Ralph Vernacchia, that was really good at kind of helping us understand where you can go as a coach and the things that aren't probably just going to get ignored and then where you can go as a consultant and where there's value. And, and even then there's some differences, right? I mean, there's roles that I have from coach to player that I can't really duplicate as consultant to athlete. 
So I think just being really cognizant of where my lane is and what the athlete can take in and attune to is really, really important. But a lot of it just centered around as a coach, controllable variables, you know, and how are we managing those and how are we, you know, pre-planning for things that could go wrong and how do we want to handle those situations should they arise? Yeah. No, I mean, what stands out to me most from what you just said is kind of the self-awareness and humility with which you approach how you're interacting with the student athlete based on what the role is. And I think it can be hard because if you're a teacher or a coach, et cetera, like you're there because you want to help the youth that you're working with, but sometimes like realizing like what you're doing that you think is helping is actually doing more harm than good can be a really hard kind of bridge to cross or, or, or even path to realize to take. So like, I guess I'm sure you're in, with all the different roles and, and things you're involved with, you're, you're kind of encountering this a lot. How do you sort of manage that and sort of self-identify what's the right thing for the specific scenario? So I, I think now, I mean, that's a little bit of my own medicine, right? I, I'm, I feel like I've become pretty efficient at recognizing, you know, take a look at my calendar, recognizing what I've got on my docket that day. And, you know, if I've got my afternoon practice with my high school team, you know, taking 30 minutes before I get to campus to really process, okay, what are we going to accomplish today? How am I going to facilitate that? You know, who are the players that I need to connect with that will drive that training session? And then I maybe follow that up with an evening club session where I'm not the coach, but I'm the performance consultant and think, okay, what are the trends that this coach and those athletes are showing in this last week or two? How can I support those without driving the training session as the front person? So I've really had to get good at, you know, taking some time before my interaction with clients or my own teams to recognize what's my role, what's my need, how am I going to affect change or or help people grow? Um, I feel like I'm pretty good at that now in, in a way that I, I feel competent and can switch gears pretty quickly. There were challenges this past fall for sure, because the, our high school team, you know, we played right after school and, and there were many times that I would be getting to campus for the high school practice, literally changing clothes in my car to leave the university where I was doing work with teams to put on the apparel that was necessary for the high school. And and maybe that meant listening to one song to switch my own gears. So it wasn't always a 30 minute deal. It could have just been a parking lot change. Um, But recognizing that I needed to play the role that's appropriate for the audience that I was going to be working with. Mm. And how much of that is like kind of trial by sort of trial by fire in terms of just doing it enough and realizing okay this works versus that works I mean I because I really like what you've said about sort of the intentional like how can I be useful to this and how much of that was like trying to be useful and not being useful and then realizing okay I need to take a better look at this before I get into it versus how much was like okay these are because I mean you talk about intentionally looking at players, not who you're trying to develop in a training session, but who are going to drive the training session. And I really like that distinction because they're not only are they driving it for themselves, I'm assuming they're also driving it for the, for the good of the whole group. Right. I will say with a hundred percent confidence that I am a much better coach now because of the work in sport and performance psychology that I, I wouldn't have said that two decades ago or even a decade ago, right? I just wouldn't have because I would have just been coach. And, you know, through the mentor process that I went through for certification, many times the chats with my mentor were about taking that that coachiness out of my work and being a better listener. And 
amazingly, being a better listener as a coach is actually a really excellent skill to employ, mm-hmm. right? Because there's many times where telling the athletes just doesn't achieve the most success as listening to what they need or want, right? So I've spent a lot more time learning how to coach with open-ended or guiding or prompting questions now, you know? So for instance, if you've got, you've got players that are we're working and getting into the final third, I don't tell them, hey, I need you to look at this pattern anymore. I say, gosh, I saw how you got into the final third. You know, maybe you penetrated on the dribble and you got into that left channel. What's another way that we could get into that final third that might be a little more dangerous? And then give them the chance to go, well, shoot, I guess I could have played into my center striker and then run underneath. And, and, and so what I found as a performance enhancement consultant, I've been able to use those skills to more effectively help think about the situation I'm in and then guide actions rather than tell and dictate. Um, so that, I mean, that's a very studied approach and, and I have to thank my mentor, Dr. Jack Lessig for that, because he came from the clinical side of things and he's, he very much approaches his performance enhancement work as a clinical based uh, technician. And that was new for me rather than, Hey, you must do this. He was like, ask them questions and, and nudge them and see if they'll give you the answer by kind of opening some doors. So that's, what's led to me, I think being way more intentional with my coaching now and I love the outcome. I mean, it seems to empower the athlete to take charge of their surroundings. And then it's up to them if they want to get to be their best self. And, and rather than me telling them what to do, which has a limited impact. Yeah. No, I mean, I think from, from my perspective as a player, I certainly have responded better to the opportunities and situations where I'm given some license to kind of figure things out for myself and put my own spin and kind of put my own interpretation on it. I do wonder though, when you're kind of creating those opportunities and options for individuals to kind of sort of choose their own path and figure things out for themselves, how do you kind of blow that up to sort of a macro level when you're talking about core group concepts in terms of like style of play or I don't know for instance like today I'm watching Man City versus Leeds before we before we get on the call and City scores twice in the first 15 minutes and like they're they're, and I think I think they're they're, I'm assuming that they're the best team in, in the league in terms of scoring early so like this is applicable to all sports even outside of soccer right being able to start quickly right I think there's like that is something that a lot of teams would like to be able to do consistently. So how do you take something, a bigger piece like that and install it in whether maybe there's as equally as many different ways that you could potentially start quickly, but also, but make it sort of applicable to where the whole group can start quickly, not just two or three individuals. So I can really only answer that as, as a coach yeah. effectively based on the high school season and the team that I, I lead. Um, you know, we just, this three weeks ago, won a state championship for the first time since 2003 with that team. And what we talked about really early on in, in August was what do we want to accomplish as a group? Not, not goals, but what do we want to accomplish on the field? Like what are the ways that we see our team wanting to play the game? And, and we got answers from the athletes. Right. And, and then we would kind of say, well, how do we do that? Right. And, and for instance, I have really not had much success or liking in coaching a, a derivation of a 4-3-3 or 4-3-3. I've just found it really limiting in movement patterns. And so I've shied away from it. But it turned out that our roster this past fall was built to have wingers and to have people that run 1v1 situations. And so as we're asking the team, what do you want to do? And they're like, well, we want to really want to just put our foot on the gas pedal. We want to score goals. We want to get at people and then press hard. Like, I'm talking to my coaches afterwards thinking we're going to have to do it. We're going to have to play in a system that I personally struggle to to lead 
and really have not found lots of ways that I connect to it. And so we listened to our athletes and, and then it was easy to say, okay, well, if their core tenants are to come out fast, to put people under pressure, to run at them, to be 1v1 artists, to support each other in tight spaces, then we're gonna use those answers they've given us and reflect them back each week and say, okay, team, you know, today's training session is whatever the topic is, right? Switching the point of attack. How does that fit with our ultimate goals as a team? And usually it would come down to, well, shoot, instead of taking three touches on the ball to switch the point of attack, if we can all do it in one or two, we can unbalance the defense, we can get at uncovered defenders, and we're much easier to get into the final third a lot quicker with numbers. That allows us you know, to be more effective in the final third more quickly. So that's how we chose to go about it this fall, was to ask the players how they'd like to play, what they'd like to accomplish, and then build a system around that, and then reflect those things they told us back at them when we gave them training topics or, or weekly sort of, here's what we're gonna accomplish this week. And then I think in that way, we created a more global driving approach with the goals. And then we could kind of build down from there. And I could look at individual players and say, okay, how are you working to be your best and then support those team-wide goals? Yeah, absolutely. I wonder sort of to kind of switch tracks a little bit to your sort of role as, as, a, as a performance consultant, how, I mean, obviously with your background, coaching collegiate soccer, playing collegiate soccer, now coaching high school soccer, you have a lot of you have a lot of sort of repertoire to draw from in terms of experience and understanding of the game. How does your, or does your approach change when you're working with a sport other than soccer as a, as a performance consultant? Um, I spend a lot of time helping athletes early define what their ideal best self is as a player or as an athlete. Um, often in our business, we talk about it as being their 10 out of 10, or at least within thrive speak. You know, so we have them go, what is your 10 out of 10? You know, so with the gymnasts, with the tennis players, players or athletes that are individual sports, let's figure out how you serve, how you tumble, how you dance in your routines. And what does that look like for you on your best day? And then it's kind of like, I guess we've used the analogy of, it's like putting GPS coordinates or an address into Waze or Google Maps, right? If we're going to go to a restaurant to meet people who've never been there, the first thing we all do is plug an address into our navigation system. So we now know the driving path. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're taking that same approach with athletes to say, let's create this end destination. You at your best right now, what are the things that you do? What are the ways that you impact the court, the pool, the field, the gym? And then let's make sure that we are preparing to go in training or games and competitions execute as many of those things as we can on the day, knowing full well that we're not going to be our A plus self every day. So, and, you know, we might have this wickedly awesome list of our 10 out of 10. That's like a paragraph of 15 things that is really, really cool. On some days we might struggle to be able to accomplish two or three of those, but we want to do those two or three to the best of our abilities athletes. So that's how we've kind of taken and said, let's set those GPS coordinates of your best, your 10 out of 10 out there, and then make sure that what we're doing and how we're getting prepared to execute in training or games is meeting us or at least getting us towards that list. That's been, I think, super successful, at least within my practice. And I'm surprised constantly that more athletes have never been asked to do something like that. Usually when I bring that to them, they're like, what the heck am I doing this for? And it's hard. It's really hard to watch them struggle through trying to define their best because they, they listen to coaches growing up that are always pointing out their flaws. And here I am saying, okay, tell me what the things are you do best on the field or on the court or in the gym. They really struggle. But once we get there, it's really cool because now they know and they can repeat certain things or aim their efforts and all of their work at a certain thing that will help them be consistent. Yeah. 
No, absolutely. I love that idea of kind of working back from your best self, working backwards from what your best self is. And I had never really heard it defined like that either until you just said it. And I kind of wonder if part of it is like so much of at least my sort of training and tutelage has been to kind of be process oriented and, and focus on like the building blocks and the steps, like maybe not focus on the end destination, but focus on the left turns, the right turns, the stop signs or whatever leading up to it to kind of use your analogy. But I guess, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've encountered athletes who have been more comfortable working sort of from the beginning to the end, I guess. Are there detriments or benefits to either? I mean, I don't know. Um, I mean, every, every athlete has their own individual triggers, right? The things that really get them going, you know, and, and for some, it is go win that championship or be better than that other guy or right. Score more points than her. Right. I mean, for a very select few, there is that outcome driven approach. And I, I guess I would say for athletes that can honestly say this works for me, go for it. That's your thing. Let's do it. And then I think you, like you talked about, Wallace, is the process, right? And, and process is safe and it's definable. And, and if it's presented well, it's measurable, right? I can do this on my cross collection. I can do this on my beam routine. You know, if I do X amount of reps, you know, with this particular type of serve, I can now count on my first serve to be this percentage of effectiveness, right? And so the process is great because it creates measurability. I think so often in sport, because outcome is the thing that everybody talks about, I want to create a different outcome for athletes than a win or a loss. And so that for me is where that shifting gears to that 10 out of 10 is important. I, in the end, I mean, you know, as a, as a player, you could have your best game out there, but that doesn't mean you're going to be the best player on the field. It doesn't mean your team's going to win, right? Yeah. I mean, you literally play the game of your life and goal and your team couldn't score. And some stupid deflection goes off somebody's foot that unweights you and it's in the back of the net through literally no fault of your own. And if all we do is look at the loss in that, it's a really, it's a travesty to take away from what you did put out on the field. And so I think in looking at those kind of athletes that are hugely affected by outcome, when we shift their attention to their 10 out of 10 and say, what are you doing today to be or approach being some version of your best self, that becomes an outcome that's more empowering than a win or a loss or a score. So it, it takes time. It's not a one conversation situation. It, it usually for me takes like the first third of a season to get that shifted around. Now, I, I work with three teams at a local university here and what do the reporters write about? They write about a win, a loss or a score, right? And so you're like, you got, yeah, get off social media. Let's look at how you executed today. And was that the best of your ability and why? And if they can say yes, then I'm like, that's fantastic because we can repeat that. They say no. Well, all right, well, then what do we got to roll our sleeves up and get back to, you know, next day? So that's been our approach. And I, I think, you know, it's not 100% effective because there's still some people that resist it. But I feel like it's been really, really effective for athletes to give them some different way to a different target to aim at, I guess, than a win or a loss. Yeah, no, I think for me, it's been super powerful to realize that obviously every day I approach training or a game, I want to have success. But I as the individual kind of have the power and license to define what for me success is going to be like on any given day. And I think like, again, you're driven by performance and performance and competition and results, right. Especially as a professional, that is kind of what keeps you going or, or, or kind of brings your career to an end, but realizing that in the, in the individual days leading up to that, or even in competition themselves, I can kind of pick out three or four things that I'm like, look, if I am dialed in on these things, then 
more often than not, everything else is going to take care of itself. And even if it doesn't, then I've, I've been successful. Um, for me, it's been a boost and it's been, it's boosted my performance, but also I think what's really cool about it is it gives me some license to make mistakes in training, to try and do things because I've tried to define success as maybe not executing, but putting myself in the position to execute. I mean, I think, I don't, I mean, how much of it is like, I mean, obviously like growth mindset, things like that, that is a term that is thrown, thrown broadly around um, sports, but how much of it in your, in your experience has been kind of creating space for athletes to put, push themselves outside of their comfort zones, not only in terms of like physical exertion, but also in terms of like success and lack of success and how they deal with that mentally in training. I'm a huge believer in reflecting and through a structured process of reflecting or, or debriefing, if you will, creating accountability, right? And when you walk off a field, a court, a gym, it's easy to say, today was great or Ugh, today was gross or yeah. whatever, right? But that isn't enough because that doesn't really help us know what to do more effectively the next day. And I would suggest even on your worst day in practice where you just felt like garbage, I guarantee if we take a structured reflective process, there are still things and many things that went into that that were actually effective. Mm -hmm. But often we get distracted by, you know, one or two sets or one or two series of a thing, or, you know, this portion of training was really rough. So, oh, the whole day sucks. And, and that's too broad brushstroke. So I think it's really important to incorporate a structured debriefing process where, an athlete walks off the practice field and says, you know, there's a series of questions that they ask her or himself and, okay, how did I do on these things today? And, and maybe I fell off in, you know, this category and that category, but man, in these three buckets, okay, that was pretty good. That was, that was repeatable. I can do that again. I can build a foundation. I repeat those other three things. Just got to work on these first two a little bit. Now I think we can drive accountability. And now I think that gives the athlete intentionality in their practice and maybe even the hunger to come back the next day and work a little harder. And then we're talking about they push themselves out of their comfort zone to get better. It's not a coach or another person challenging them to do it. They go, wow, I like these three things I did well. I could be wickedly good if I improve these other two. That's important to me. I'm hungry to do it. So for me, that structured debriefing process asks them in a quiet space out of the field to, to live with their performance and think about it. And, and maybe that's where the uncomfortableness comes in to really say, what did I do today? Maybe I didn't eat right. Maybe I didn't sleep well. Maybe I didn't manage my time. And that was the downfall of the training session. Or maybe I got distracted by the media dude that was over there talking to my teammate and I couldn't shift gears back to whatever I was supposed to be doing. But at least we can go, oh, okay. Yep. That caught me today. So I think in that way, that's how I want athletes to create their own uncomfortable moments rather than a coach or a, an opponent driving them to be mm. uncomfortable. No, you, I've heard you mention accountability a couple of times, and obviously there's multiple definitions of that word within sport, but I really like the sort of mental accountability that you've been talking about, because I think, again, to reference my own experience, um, when you are kind of caught in a run of bad form or whatever, it can feel like you're a little bit helpless. You don't, you're being pulled all these different directions. You don't know exactly, you can't nail down exactly what you're struggling with. And you, I mean, you hit the nail on the head when you talk about like the difficulty of kind of being honest with yourself about what is leading to a poor performance. But again, to sort of reemphasize what you said, the real, it's really empowering when you realize like, okay, like it is definable to these things. And once you sort of, I guess the accountability for me 
kind of the next step along that is sort of an ownership and ownership of your performance and ownership of your development and leading that kind of leading to being an active participant. And for me, once you're active, then all of a sudden, like you're not kind of just treading water. You have a direct um, place you're trying to go. Even if that place is still really far away, you kind of at least know where you're headed and know how to get there. Well, and, and so much in the literature and sport and performance psychology, you can find it littered with the idea that an athlete or a client of mine, they are their own expert. You know, it doesn't matter in many cases what a coach thinks or what a therapist thinks, or even what I think about an athlete. What an athlete knows about themselves far exceeds what as an external person is ever gonna be able to determine. And so when that accountability and that ownership in their game development exists, they know. Now, maybe they don't want to actually admit what it's mm -hmm. gonna to take to get over a hurdle or to affect change in their performance, but they know athletes know. I mean, I knew, but I, I think you've got to get them to say, okay, what am I really hungry to achieve? What am I willing to work toward? And if we can figure out that as a flank player, I'm not particularly great at hitting driven far post crosses, and that's going to be important because our system has backside runs developing, then shoot, I have to decide, do I want to address that issue or do I want to just keep cutting the ball back? And so for me, I think that's where that accountability and ownership is important because they know what they need. You just sometimes have to nudge them to get there, but that's so much more empowering than a coach saying, I need you to hit this back post cross. Like that holds for a day or half a training session, but it's not going to hold for the season. The player goes, our team is better, or I am more effective when I hit this ball. Now that's why I need to go out and hit 50 balls a day with both feet at that. Done. They're going to get better once they reach that stage. Yeah. I mean, you talked earlier about kind of the power of listening and how that has improved your performance as a head coach. And I mean, I mean, imagine it's a huge part of your role as a, as, as a performance consultant, how much of it is really just kind of poking and prodding with different questions to allow the athlete to tell you what they already know about themselves, but by telling, by virtue of them saying it out loud to you, they really get to hear it and acknowledge it. So yeah, I, and you asked me off camera. So I, I work with the UW men's soccer team and there, I have a variety of prompts with some of the athletes that seem to help dial them in individually before games. And um, as an example, I have one athlete that I always go up to him on game days and say, okay, what are you going to make happen today? And I need him to spit back, you know, and he'll, he'll say this, that, and the other thing. And sometimes if he's a little nervous, those answers are really generic. And so then I can listen and say, okay, tell me how you're going to do that today. And usually the how incorporates what the pregame scout was or what the opponent's spacing might be, or, you know, maybe his combination of who he's playing with on the day and his, so his how could change a little, but just listening in that way. And then nudging back is huge because then he has created his own, again, his own GPS coordinates for success that day, but just checking in a little bit before kickoff or at some point in the warmup and, you know, reflecting back, okay, here's, Here's how I'm going to apply the energy that I want to apply. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and I think for me, as soon as you get an athlete saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do today. And it's specific. You know, I'm going to make runs behind. I'm going to get into this channel. I'm going to get into this flank. I'm going to combine with Sam Smith or whatever. Now it's purposeful action. And I would suggest at that point, coaches don't need to say much once the first whistle blows because the athlete is taking charge of that. Now, whether coach agrees with that or not, that's a whole other matter, right? But I think in general, once an athlete understands how they're going to affect change and be impactful, we don't need somebody to tell us what to do, right? Mm, yeah. I guess a challenge that I can see in terms of that like individual interaction is when you're working with teams that are big in terms of numbers, how do you try and, I guess, 
service the needs of each individual to the extent that they need, but also make sure like you are helping the team as a whole. And I guess you, you look at it as, as a team as a whole, how much of your work is done in sort of that focus versus how much this has you, have you focused in specifically on each individual? I love that question. So one of the things that I feel very dear about in effective sports psychology practice is to make sure that we are using data. So at least within our practice, we have a mental skills assessment that every team, every group I work with, each athlete on the team takes this mental skills assessment. So I end up having an individual profile for that athlete, and then I can compile it together and create a team profile. And because soccer is my expertise with soccer, I can break it out by positional group even. So then I've got pockets of ways where I can say, gosh, the outside backs might need work on, you know, some self-talk and some emotion management. The forwards might need work on imagery training. And it looks like the keepers need some work on, you know, anxiety control. And, and so in that way, I can kind of narrow down by positional groups or athletes where they need to go. Um, you know, with teams that are, you know, like, like we mentioned gymnastics or tennis or swimming, event groups are much smaller and it's a little bit easier to get around to everybody or the numbers on the roster on those teams are, you know, 10, 12, 15 with, you know, bigger team sports like soccer. It, it's to be fair, it's probably not likely that I'm going to connect with each athlete on an individual level, certainly not every day. And there are some based on kind of the hierarchy of needs of where we're in the season that maybe I don't really interact with some in the fall, if that's your competition season, and I shift work with that group until maybe February, March, and spend more time with the starters early. So it's really tough, but I think again, with my own practice, trying to be really thoughtful about what does the team need? How can I support what the team needs? You know, taking the sort of the, the Hippocratic oath, if you will, with medical professionals of let's do no harm first, right? Let's mm -hmm. make sure we're there to support rather than distract and, and take apart. So I think always listening to what the coaches think are important topics to hit is hugely key. And that drives kind of my own actions on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. Yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of fascinating to think about how there's so many different parts of a collegiate athletic program. I mean, you know yourself having run one for so long, like there is the coaching staff, the core sort of technical staff that are soccer-based, but then there's athletic trainers, strength and conditioning, sports psychologists, things like that. Where do you sort of see yourself kind of fitting in to that sort of jigsaw puzzle of, of individuals. And I guess like you talked a little bit about emphasizing what the coaches think are important. How much license do you kind of give yourself to be like, Hey, I hear what you think is important, but from my assessment, these things are as important or even more important. So the first part of that question, most often at the collegiate setting, uh, I fit into the support staff medical personnel category, right? I'm me, the trainer, the strength and conditioning coach, the team doc. I'm kind of in that pool of people as far as how the athletes view me as a resource. On the soccer side, it can be different, but it probably shouldn't be. It's never my place as a mental performance consultant when working with soccer teams to give tactical or technical advice. That's certainly best served coming from the technical staff. And I, I'll, I mean, in full transparency, that's a hard one for me. Like I have yeah. to really edit many, many times, you know, an athlete says I'm really struggling to accomplish X on the field. There's a lot of times I got to take a deep breath because what I want to say is going to be coachy, mm. but I realize that's not my role. And so in that way, I have to say, wait a minute, I'm over there with the team doc, the trainer, the strength and conditioning coach, the nutritionist. 
I better ask either another question or just ask the athlete, what does he think or she thinks? And then can they go back and ask a clarifying question to the technical staff? So I think for me, I tend to fit most effectively in that medical staff role. Um, and I think that's a good place to be. The second part of your question really, I think, comes down to the relationship and the longevity of, of that relationship within with a head coach or with a department. You know, if I've been with a group for more than a season, I certainly have more leeway to say, hey, I've noticed this trend. And maybe it isn't a technical or tactical issue. It's this other trend. I would strongly encourage you to think about how we could affect some change on that. Um, if it's kind of a first go around with a team, I listen a lot and I might ask, you know, how do you think we're doing on X? But I think with a new relationship and a new coaching staff that I haven't worked a ton with, I have to be really careful about pushing hard because they may have a plan that's got some longevity to it that I just haven't been privy to seeing yet. Um, and again, the concept of do no harm, right? There's a ton of examples out there of negative examples of people that come in as life coaches or, or saying they're sports psychologists when they're not, or just they're, you know, they're whatever they even call themselves. And they come in and they can wreck a locker room because they think that they can come in and just create this rah-rah moment and drive the team. And um, even in Seattle, where I am, there's some examples of that historically with some of our pro teams here, that there were people that came in and they wrecked a locker room. I can't afford to do that, right? It, it's yeah. not, that's not my role. My role is to support the coaching staff and help the players make improvements and get better and be in a good space to go compete and train. So I, I've got to be really careful with nudging, right? I have to be, you know, gosh, coach, what do you think about X? Tell me the ways that you prefer to handle X. And usually in asking them that, we'll get to the place where we needed to go, but I don't say, I need you to just do this. I don't think that would go over well. Right. Yeah. I mean, you've talked a lot about nudging in terms of just your communication with players and prompting and things like that, but also with your communication with coaches. And I guess this is kind of a big picture question. So it could be addressed on various levels, whether with coaches and with players, but I mean, I imagine if a coach is willing to have you work with, with her or his team, like there's a, there's a, there's a degree of like receptivity to like what you're, what you're pushing and the ideas that you think are important and, and sort of the process that you're trying to get the athletes to go for and, and go through. So maybe kind of on a player level, what are things that athletes can do if they find themselves working with somebody like yourself that can really open themselves up to the kind of the benefits of the process? I mean, you talked about athletes being their own sort of self best best experts on themselves, like, and being willingness to talk about yourself, I imagine is, it is an important thing, but what are things that athletes can do to allow sort of mental performance professionals such as yourself to really do their jobs in, in, in the best possible way? I think first they need to, and, and yeah, I, first they have to be willing to be effective in their goal setting as an individual, right? Um, and it can't just be want to win a championship. It has to be, what are the areas that I'm hungry to grow in? Where do I want to take my game or my event? And, and then from there, we can break it down and say, okay, well, what's the periodization of your training or your season? And now can we look at things in chunks, right? You say you want to get to X goal. That's awesome. That's really cool. What are we going to do in the next four to six weeks to make progress towards that? Where's our next marker six months from now, wh wherever that is. And so I think the first thing I always want athletes to do is, let's start thinking about where you want your game to go, right? Let's not let, let 
external forces tell you? Why don't you determine where it is that you are willing to take yourself and, and start being specific with that? Because if an athlete can be specific with those goals to, to me or, or to their coaches, it's a lot easier for us to then help them get there than if they don't know the answer to that question. Um, I think secondly, being willing to ask for feedback, right? As an athlete, if you can say, all right, coach, I've been working on X and Y, what do you think? Is it coming along? Or I've been trying this, do you feel like that's the right direction for me to go? I love it when athletes can ask that because then it shows the coach or myself that the athlete is being intentional with their training, that they have got an opinion about it and they're asking for a little feedback. And to me, that's a really good discussion that can happen then between athlete and coach or athlete and myself. Um, for me, I think those have to be the first two things. And, and then I think the last one that seems to be prevalent through most sport across all genders is understanding how to manage their emotions, right? I, I, yes, we want to feel good about our game. We want to have joy and experience the fun and excitement of success and whatever that means to each athlete. And when we don't achieve that, we can feel frustrated or sad or, or despondent or whatever. But those negative motions don't help drive performance. And yes, it might be normal to feel that, but if we're in the middle of a practice and we haven't executed correctly and we choose to let our emotions run away with us and go to a you know, kind of a negative broad motion, the rest of that practice is unlikely to be successful. So I think managing their emotions and understanding where's neutral, right? And, and, if, and if something goes well, okay, enjoy it, but let's not get carried away with it. And if something doesn't go as well as you like, okay, let's, let's recognize that's not exactly where it needs to be. Maybe we adopt our neutral mindset and go, oh, I tried this. The outcome was that. I got to tweak this thing a little bit differently. Get back to that neutral mindset. So I think that's how I would answer that question is, you know, have we set effective, measurable, specific goals? Are we reflective and communicating with coaches? And, and are we managing emotions such that we can move forward? Or are we getting hung up with, you know, negative loops? A hundred percent. I mean, I think all three of those things are super important. And I mean, I guess to kind of close, I'd, I'd love to ask a little bit more about that last sort of managing emotions piece, because as a young player, it was something that I struggled with. And I always found myself like being around people who were reminding me to go back to neutral. But for me, at least when I wasn't in neutral, someone telling me to, hey, go back to neutral didn't for me it was it, it didn't work so I guess how do you kind of what or how do you sort of teach athletes and what's the sort of groundwork you lay for them to kind of adopt what works best for them to find that neutrality um in performance so again I think it comes back to let's identify what your own best ideal emotional characteristics are as a player what let's just start with them what are they right and and, and to be fair like I mean I've coached guys at the PDL and the USL level they played best when they were angry Okay, then let's figure out a way to get you to that space consistently as, as crappy as that sounds. Let's do it. Most people, that's not the case. So I think identifying where is your ideal emotional state, right? And then are we getting ready to be that? Are we showing that body language? Are we demonstrating that? Are we talking like that? Are we, you know, embodying that ideal emotional state? And then I think we've got to work on some tools to get you back there, right? And so the, I mean, the first mental training skill always is breath control right? There's so many things we can do with breath control. We can activate, we can, we can calm down, we can relax, we can energize, we can focus, you know, variety of different things we can do with our breath, right? So I think teaching breath control techniques are huge because that can be the reset 
you, you've got that with you all the time, right? I mean, however many breaths you and I've taken in the last 56 minutes proves that we can do it. Right. So just controlling that can be usually the first step to giving ourselves a fighting chance to get back to our ideal place, our neutrality, if you need to, or your ideal place. Um, sometimes you need a little harder thought stoppage routine, right? And you know that's where you'll see some athletes, they've got a clap and they, that clap is the, let's acknowledge that that previous less than ideal performance existed. And now in the new space, I've got a chance to reset or, you know, there used to be a, the rubber band snap. Um, sometimes with athletes, you have them write keywords on, on a wrist or on a shoe or underneath the hem of their shirt. They can reflect back to that cue to bring them back to their, their ideal place, whether it's neutrality or otherwise. So I think those are three examples of a reset, but it always starts with breath control after we identify kind of where's your ideal place. And, and then as a consultant, if I said, okay, we've, we've taught these tools and I recognize that you're still struggling to get back there, then that's where we might pull out and do some different stuff off the field or outside of the gym um, to help repair that. So the next training session, we're not stuck in that, you know, less than ideal place. But I, I think, you know, for me that, that breath control, you know, a thought an automatic thought stoppage routine is great. Um, some kind of cue word or cue that helps get us back to something that's effective. Um, you know, I mean, for keepers, there's a variety of things that come to mind, but set position and active hands and vision are always good places to go back to, right? Something that's a little more external rather than in here. Um, but in a, in a short window, that's how I'd answer that question. Yeah. Well, awesome. This has been, this has been incredible, super instructive and interesting from my um, vantage point. And I know that'll be the, the case for many of the listeners. Um, I guess as we wrap up, can you just, if people are interested in getting in touch with you further to learn more, to maybe potentially work with you or have their organization work with you, where's the best place for people to do that? Yeah. Uh, our website is www.thrive, S as in sport, P as in performance.com. So thrivesp.com. Um, can find all the ways to contact me from there if they will. Okay. Awesome. Derek, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Wallace. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Separation is in the Preparation podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do what you can to share it with others. As always, you can find us on Instagram at the Sep is in the Prep, or if you'd like to reach me directly, I can be found on all social media platforms under the handle at Wallapse11. Thanks, and take care.